Today's reading is from Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 3 and 12 to 17. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees, and make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone, and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who, saw his birthright, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Thanks, Josh. Beloved, there's my opinion, there's your opinion, and then there's what Josh just read. We should ask that the Lord would teach us. Father, Son, and Spirit, thank you for these amazingly gracious words. Thank you that You have provided all that we need in Christ Jesus. Thank you that you have spoken to us to help us make sense out of our experiences and to give us hope and to encourage us to endure. We pray, Father, that you would teach us today, that by your spirit you would would shape and mold our hearts, that you would uproot idols, things that we look to for life other than you and that you would cultivate in in their place the fruit of your spirit. Speak, Lord. We need to hear you. We long to hear you. In Christ's name, amen. Well, good morning. My name is Jeff Wilkins, and I'm one of the pastors here at City Church. And if you're visiting with us, we are really glad that you were here. We are on the sort of home stretch in a a pretty long, extensive look at the letter uh, to the Hebrews. And we come this morning to one of the most practical and instructional and applicable passages that we've seen in a while, but also one of the most encouraging passages. It's actually, it's such a joy. I was like, I was kind of chopping at my bit. I can't wait to get up here this morning because this is, it's an encouraging passage. Now, if you've been with us for any length of time, you've heard me say this over and over again, but this letter is written by a pastor who loves his congregation dearly. And we don't know why, but he is separated from his congregation. And his congregation is, is beaten down and they are, they're worn out and they are beginning to falter in their faith. 
The author describes his congregation in verse 12 as those who have drooping hands and weak knees. And in verse three, he is clearly concerned that they're growing weary and faint-hearted, which is why he says to them, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Now, we know from what we saw in chapter 10 that this Christian community has already experienced all kinds of suffering and hardships and and public reproach and persecution. Some folks have had their property seized. Others have found themselves imprisoned and they've endured up to this point. And you might think that if someone is willing to endure all of that, that they would never be tempted to walk away from Jesus. But if that was the case, the author would have never written this letter. You see, starting the race isn't the same thing as finishing the race. The author is concerned that his readers are starting to take their foot off of the gas pedal of of, of spiritual faith. He's concerned that they are beginning to coast that they're beginning to sort of distance themselves from the church, that they're beginning to lose heart, that they're, they're, they're considering giving up, that they're considering giving in. Sinclair Ferguson says, the Christian life is like riding a bicycle. If you don't keep pedaling, you will eventually fall off. That might sound trite, but it's true. Earlier in the letter, the author warns his readers and he warns us about spiritual drifting. What do you need to do to drift away? What do you need to do? Nothing, absolutely nothing. Drifting is the easiest thing in the world to do. It takes no effort. It's swimming against the tide that requires effort. And the Christian life is always swimming against the tide. That is why the author says to us, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Now, what's so beautiful and encouraging about this passage is that the author isn't just laying down a command. He's he's not giving us sort of a Nike, just do it kind of instruction. Rather, he lays out why we need to endure, and then he tells us how we are to endure. So let's think about those two things this morning. Why do we need to endure? The author answers that question for us by comparing the Christian life to a race. He says, let us run with endurance the race. The Greek word that's translated race in our passage is agon from which we get the word agony. And that tells us something very important. It tells us that the race that we are called to run is not a sprint. It is not a hundred yard dash. I mean, it's a marathon or 
maybe it's an, an ultra marathon. Do you, I, I did a little bit of research this week. Do you know what happens to the human body when someone runs an ultra marathon? It's astounding. Why anybody would do this, I have no idea. In addition to the cuts and bruises you might get from falling down, muscle cramps, stress fractures, and blisters, those are all sort of, yeah, 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 tell me more. You can have hallucinations because running through the night combined with extreme fatigue can sometimes wreak havoc on your mind. Your vision might get blurry because your corneas swell. And, and you run the risk of hypothermia or heat illness because when your energy stores are depleted, your body can no longer warm you up or cool you down. I have a friend who a couple of years ago did the uh, Ironman triathlon in Chattanooga, Tennessee. And he finished the race, but something happened during the race. He, he, something happened with his, his water intake and his salt and his electrolytes, they got all out of whack. So he finishes the race, and he goes home, and his, his speech begins to slur. And his, his core temperature begins to drop. And his body, even though it's the summer, his body cannot warm him back up. His, he, he, he blacks out, they put him into an ambulance and he spends three days in the hospital. His, his brain was swelling. What the author of Hebrews is saying to us is that if you are a believer, you have entered into a spiritual ultra marathon, except that it's not just a 50 mile race or a 100 mile race or a 250 mile race, which people really do run it is a lifetime race that begins the moment you bend the knee of your heart to Jesus Christ and it ends when your heart stops beating. And here's the thing, like an ultramarathon, it is grueling, or at least it can be grueling. It can be hard, it can, it can be difficult, it can be painful. And it can be exhausting. And the temptation that you face and that I face in the face of the difficulties of the Christian life is throwing in the towel, tapping out of, of walking away, of quitting. The author of Hebrews is clearly not a health and wealth pastor. He wants you to know what you're in for. Not so that you would be discouraged, but so that you would actually know how to finish the race well. How to run the race with endurance so that you might be able to say with the Apostle Paul, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Again, it's, it's no good just to start the race. We have to finish the race. So how, how do we endure to the end, well, the, the author gives us four instructions in this passage, and that's where we're gonna spend most of our time this morning. Instruction number one, you need the encouragement of others. The author begins 
verse one. Therefore, since we are uh, surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, which is clearly a reference to the people that he has mentioned in chapter 11, Abel and Enoch, Noah and Abraham, Sarah and Moses and the rest. What does he mean when he describes them as witnesses? You might think that what he is saying is that that we are running this sort of spiritual race and there's this huge cloud of witnesses that are gathered around like spectators, just just watching us. And, And there is a very real sense in which that is true, but I don't think that's what he's getting at when he calls them witnesses. Because these people aren't just witnesses to us running. What they are witnesses to is the faithfulness of God. It's as if they are standing around along the route and they're shouting to us that as difficult as this race might be, God will keep his promises to us. Why? Because he has kept his promises and he is keeping his promises to them. They are shouting to us, don't give up. God is good. God's word is good. God's promises are good. He will keep them. Run the race, it's worth it. What the author is getting at is that even though these saints of old didn't receive what was promised for them in their lifetime, they persevered to the end and they trusted in the promises of God and they finished well. And that makes them examples for us of what it looks like to live by faith. Like Abraham who originally received the promise from God in Genesis chapter 12, that God would give him and his descendants a new land. But you probably remember, when Abraham died, all he owned was a burial plot. Or like the prophets in the Old Testament who prophesied about the coming Messiah and the kingdom of God, but they never saw the kingdom realized. Yet, they kept running. They finished the race. And their witness should be a major encouragement to us. What do we do with this? Well, a couple thoughts. This, is a, this might sound really weird, but I think it's actually, I think it's important. This, this, this is a good reason why reading biographies of Christians who have gone before you, who have run the race, who have struggled and who have finished, well, this is why it's a good thing to read biographies of believers. One example, I ran across a story this week of Eric Little of Chariots of Fire acclaim. If you haven't seen the movie Chariots of Fire, this is the only movie I will ever recommend from the pulpit. You should see Chariots of Fire. It's a little slow, but it's a great story. You might know this about Eric Little, but he was a devout believer. He was a Christian and he could run. I mean, he could run fast. In fact, he could run so fast that he was chosen to represent Great Britain at the 1924 Summer Games. His specialty was the 100-yard dash. They didn't call it 100 meter back then, they called it 100 yard. And because his particular race was run on a Sunday, he decided not to run it because he wanted to honor the Sabbath and keep it holy. But instead of running the 100-yard dash, he decided he would run the quarter mile. And here's the thing, you know, he won. He won the gold medal, 
What you might not know about Eric Little is this though. After winning at the Olympics, he returned to China, which is where he had been born. His parents were missionaries and he returned to China to join them in their missionary work. While there, he met his wife and he had three daughters. Toward the end of the 1930s, the empire of Japan began to wage war against the Republic of China. And in 1937, the Japanese captured Shanghai and the capital city of Nanjing. And they began to occupy Eastern China. Things got dicey and dangerous. And so Eric sends his wife and sends his daughters to Canada, but he stays in China. Then in 1943, the Japanese rounded up all of the Westerners who were in China and they put them into an internment camp. In that camp, which is, was known as the Shantung Compound, Eric became known as Uncle Eric. He evidenced the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, qualities that were in short supply in the compound. And the result was that he was loved and respected by everyone. I read a book by a professor at the University of Chicago named the Shantung Compound, uh, his name is Langdon Gilkey, and he said that cr Christians were notorious for being just as selfish and just as self-centered as anybody else in that compound, except for Eric Little. Eric Little was loved and he was respected. Then in 1945, right before slipping into a coma and dying of a brain tumor in the compound, he wrote this letter to his wife and he said, it's complete surrender meaning that he had given the entirety of his life over to God. And later, friends from the camp would recount Eric, he would recount that Eric would say, when you speak of me, give the glory to my master, Jesus Christ. I don't know about you, Bam. I need stories like that. Reading biographies of people like Eric Little will expand our imagination and inspire us to do more than what we otherwise might think we are capable of doing in the here and now. There's another way that this, this applies to us, and it's this. We are not running this race by ourselves. We are running this race with each other. We are not running it against each other. We are running it alongside one another. And what we need to do is we need to encourage one another. The author of Hebrews has told us in chapter 10 that we need to consider how we can stir up one another to love and good deeds. We need to consider how we can stir one another up in running this race of faith. How, how do we do that here at City Church? Well, we do it in lots of ways, but one way, Josh announced, neighborhood groups. Neighborhood groups are communities of people that get together, that pray together, that bear one another's burdens together, that encourage one another, that challenge one another, um, that, that, that where you develop the kind of relationships where someone can say to you, hey, I, I, think, I, think, I think that's sin and you need to repent and believe. There are places where we can grow more and more to be like Jesus. We need those kind of relationships. That's one of the things that this passage points us to. We need, we need to be encouraged by others. But he goes on, he says, we also need to know the difference between profitable, I mean, between profitable, between what is profitable and what is permissible. Now, what in the world does that mean? 
The author writes, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight. What's the author talking about? Well, think about it like this. A runner in training looks very different than a runner in competition. If you're, if you're training and it's cold outside, what do you do? Well, you put on your shoes, you put on your shorts, but you probably also put on sweatpants and a sweatshirt, or if it's really cold, maybe you put on a jacket. But if, if you've entered a competitive race, what do you wear? Well, you, you don't wear sweatpants. You don't wear a sweatshirt and you certainly don't wear a jacket. Why? Because when you run a competitive race, you want to be completely unencumbered from any extra weight. You want to, to, to shed any extra bulk, anything that can slow your pace. What the author of Hebrews is saying is that it's the same in the Christian life. It's the same in this race that we are called to run. There are things that are fine in and of themselves, completely permissible, but they aren't necessarily profitable. What the author is saying is that the permissible needs to be subordinated and in service to the profitable because everything needs to serve the goal of finishing the race. What might some of these permissible things be? Your use of alcohol, watching TV, exercise, good grades, playing or watching sports, advancing in your career, the list could go on. All of these things are God's good and gracious gifts to us. But the question you have to ask yourself is, is this something going to build me up? Is this something going to strengthen the fellowship of God's people? Is this something going to advance my goal of running towards Jesus and his glory? Will laying aside this something better enable me to serve Christ? Does this something have a tendency to distract me or drain me of energy so that I can't and I don't serve the Lord? Does this something draw me to Jesus or distract me from Jesus? Does this something help me love Jesus more? And here's the thing. Different people will think about the same thing and for one person, it will be not just permissible, but profitable. But for another person, it will be permissible, but probably, nah, I don't need to go there. What's permissible for one person can be profitable for someone else and vice versa. And that's very important to know because we should never bind another's conscience to something that is not in Scripture. We should not bind people's consciences to our preferences. That's what the Pharisees did. And do you remember how Jesus des described the Pharisees? Matthew 23, the scribes and the Pharisees tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders. And then Jesus calls them hypocrites, blind guides, and whitewashed tombs. We don't want to go there. If we're gonna run the Christian race to the end first, 
we need the encouragement of others. Second, we need to know the difference between what is permissible and what is profitable. Third instruction, we need to know our particular sin struggles. The author says, goes on in verse one to say, let us also lay aside every sin which clings so closely. And then he goes on in verses 14 to 17 and he rattles off a bunch of different sins and then he says something that's a bit unnerving if you really think about it. He says, strive for peace with everyone, which we're, we're cool with, but then he says, and for, that hol- and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. It's a bit unnerving, but the author says this because he knows that Jesus came not simply to forgive our sins. Jesus did come to forgive our sins, but he also came to change us. He also came to transform us. He also came to make us look more and more like him. What the author is is saying is that sin is deadly serious and we need to deal with our sin like it's deadly serious. Do you remember what Jesus said about lust in the Sermon on the Mount? You remember Matthew 5? You've heard it said, Do not commit adultery, but I say, if you look on a woman with lust in your heart, you've committed adultery with her. And then he says this, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Those aren't my words. Those are Jesus' words. Now, Jesus is not commanding us to mutilate our bodies. What he is commanding is that we deal rigorously and ruthlessly with sin, with our sin. Because as the pastor John Owen once said, kill sin or it will kill you. Now, you might say, golly, Jeff, Sounds so legalistic. Where's the grace? I come to City Church because you guys talk about grace and I would say yes. But here's the deal. Grace is not opposed to effort. Grace is opposed to earning, which is why the Apostle Paul can say in Titus chapter two, and this is a passage which I quoted last week, but it's worth repeating this week. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. And then the Apostle Paul goes on to say that Jesus gave himself to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who were zealous for good works. That's how grace works Grace brings forgiveness, but grace also brings transformation. We also need to see that sin is not just an isolated event. Sin is not just something you do or something that you don't do, that you should do. Sin starts in the heart. Matthew 7, 21 to 23. Sin has a way of, of weaving itself into the very fabric of our being, into our character, into our personality, into our weaknesses, and yes, even into our strengths. 
And what that means is that sin takes a particular and unique shape in each of us, and it comes to expression in particular and unique ways. Therefore, we need to take the time to really get to know ourselves, to really get to know the different and various ways that sin works its way in our lives and works its way out in our lives, the way that Satan trips us up. Are you tempted toward pride? Or are you tempted toward self-righteousness? Are you tempted toward self-pity? Are you tempted toward laziness and apathy? Are you tempted toward seeking pleasure or comfort? Are you tempted toward seeking human praise? Are you tempted to seek security other than the security that we find in the Lord? Are you tempted to regard your own thoughts and your own opinions as higher than his thoughts and his opinions? And are you tempted to believe that your experience is more important than what he experienced for you? Sinclair Ferguson writes, we are sinners and not merely people who occasionally sin. Sin is not superficial to us, a mere flesh wound. It is a deep distortion, a twisted hostility towards God and his reign over us. And although believers now belong to the new creation in Christ, we still live in the old one and in the same body. So long as it's true, sin remains and entangles us and needs to be unmasked, untangled, and thrown off. Here's the question. <clears throat> Do you know, are you aware of the particularness of your sins? Do you know what sets you off? That maybe doesn't set your roommate off or set your spouse off. Do you know where you tend to turn rather than turning to God. I love what the pastors who wrote the Westminster Confession of Faith say. They say this, they say, it's every person's duty to endeavor to repent of their particular sins particularly. How, how, how do you do that? Well, it's, it's only if you know your particular sins, your particular struggles, your particular sin patterns. Do you know yourself like that? But we need more than to know how to identify our particular struggles with sin and temptation. We need to be encouraged by other people. We need to know the difference between what is permissible and what is profitable. We need to know how to identify our particular struggles with sin. But finally... And best, we need to look to Jesus. Why? The author tells us. Because, verse two, he is the founder and the perfecter of our faith. The word that's translated founder in our passage is only used a handful of times in the New Testament. It can also be translated author. And what that means is that in his life, death, and resurrection, Jesus not only trailblazed a path from death to life, but also that what he accomplished on the cross and in his res uh, resurrection guarantees that those who look to him in faith will share in the results of his death and resurrection. What is your only hope in life and death? That I belong, 
body and soul to Jesus. What the author is saying when he says, look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, is that we are not saved by the strength of our faith. We are saved by Jesus. He is the object of our salvation. He is the object of our faith. As the founder and author of our faith, Jesus creates faith in you. It's a gift. Ephesians 2, chapter, uh, verse 8. And as the perfecter of your faith, he encourages you to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. As we come to the table, there's one last thing that you need to see when you look at Jesus. The author writes, look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. What was the joy that was set before Jesus? The author actually tells us back in chapter two. In chapter two, verse 10, the author uses the same word that is translated founder in our passage, there. It's the only other place in Hebrews where he uses that word. He says that Jesus is the founder of our salvation. And he says, Jesus was made perfect through suffering. Why? so that he might bring many sons and daughters to glory. Jesus was made perfect. Jesus as our founder was made perfect through suffering so that he might bring many sons and daughters to glory. Do you know what that means? It means that the joy that was set before Jesus was you. That the joy that was set before Jesus was me. That the joy set before Jesus was us. That Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame to bring many sons and daughters, to bring you and me to glory. That Jesus, as we confessed earlier, was made sin so that you and I who look to him in faith might be made the righteousness of God. Beloved, you may not understand why certain things happen or don't happen to you. You you may not know what God is doing in your life when he walks you through the valley of the shadow of death. But what you can know and what you must know is this, that Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame not to make glory a possibility. Meaning it's possible if you can just hold on, if you can just muster up the strength, if you can just, just, just sort of white knuckle it through life. But Jesus endured the cross, despising of the shame, despising the shame to make glory a certainty, to accomplish bringing you to glory. Because of Jesus, glory is your destiny. Therefore, 
in light of that truth. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, who is both the author and the perfecter of our faith. Pray with me. Father, thank you for this sweet word. Thank you for this challenging word. Thank you for the way that it, 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 it contradicts the way that we typically think. Thank you that it reveals to us sin. Thank you that it offers us forgiveness in Jesus Christ. I pray, Lord, that you would take your word and that you would burn it on our hearts. I pray, Lord, that that you would continue your good work which you have begun here and that you will bring it to completion. I pray, Lord, that you would give us faith, that you would increase our faith, that you would enable us to say no to sin and yes to life. And I pray that you would allow us to see you in your beauty, to gaze upon you in your majesty and to be transformed more and more into your image. I pray all these things in Christ's name, amen.